do before we get into the before we talk about the series, let me start with the story. I'll get into the scripture in just a minute here, but let me tell you about the true story of Eric Liddell. Eric is the uh, well-known and well-celebrated Scottish athlete, the uh, the, the runner and uh, the Olympic uh, runner, and he um, his life and his story was popularized in the movie Chariots of Fire. So the year was 1924, and it was the Paris Olympics, and uh, as the, the anticipation and the tension was building towards the uh, very, very awaited 100-meter race that Eric Little was favored to win, uh, he made a shocking decision. The race had been scheduled on a Sunday, and Eric was a devout Christian known for his strong convictions in his faith, and he personally felt like he couldn't run on the Sabbath day. He felt like that would be uh, dishonorable uh, to do. And so he uh, made the shocking decision to pull out from the Olympic race, much to the disappointment of uh, his country, his entire country, all of his teammates as well. People were pretty upset. People actually turned against him. Some of his uh, fans and people, loyal friends, people criticizing him publicly for this decision. People saying, surely, why would you why would you do this? This is so uh, important. Uh, but Eric was steadfast. He was convinced this was the right thing uh, to do based on his understanding of how he wanted to honor uh, the day of rest. And, uh, but he pivoted. So he decided to instead run the 400-meter race, uh, which was on a different day. Uh, even though he wasn't suited for this, he hadn't trained for it. It wasn't his strong suit. The 100-meter race was his thing. Uh, but nevertheless, he pivoted, ran the 400-meter race. Not only did he get gold, but he set a new world record. The guy was so fast that he was nicknamed uh, the Flying Scotsman. After the Olympic Games, Eric Liddell turned his attention to his other calling, other than being an athlete. His other calling uh, was to be a missionary in China. And so he gave up the fame he gave up the adulation, the financial opportunities that came with being a celebrity athlete, uh, and the reputation he had been gaining for himself. He laid it all down to become a teacher and a missionary in a remote part of the world. And this period that he entered into would be the darkest period of his life, entering into World War II. As tensions were building, people weren't sure exactly what was going to happen, but they decided to evacuate his wife and his children to Canada. And Eric stayed behind, saying, understanding, well, we're not sure. Let's, he's going to stay on the ground with some other missionaries and continue the work to reach China with the gospel of Jesus. They weren't sure what was going to happen, but Eric knew let's stay. You know, he needed to stay. Well, soon after that, the Japanese invaded. And they rounded up all of the missionaries and put them in an internment camp including Eric Liddell. And the conditions in the internment camp were grim. Survival was a real struggle. Food was scarce. There was no running water and no functioning toilets. It's said, although it cannot be corroborated, but it's one of those things that is repeated, uh, it's the kind of thing that could be true, that Winston Churchill at the time, because Eric was a celebrity athlete, that Winston Churchill uh, negotiated a prisoner exchange to get him released. But Eric gave his spot to a pregnant woman 
If it's not true, it's the kind of thing he would have done. We can't verify it, but uh, possibly it happened that way. But things grew worse and worse in the internment camp. There were cesspools, there were rats and flies and disease. It was overcrowded, and all the prisoners in the camp would sometimes turn on each other. Even missionaries, Christians, people in these terrible circumstances would mistreat each other or take from each other and react to each other in different ways. And it had now been four years since Eric had been separated from his wife and his three children. He didn't know if or when the war would end or if he would ever see his family again. Let me pause the story there. I'll tell you the conclusion of the story at the end of the sermon. It relates to our subject today. So we're in this series called Being the Church, and uh, the purpose of this this series is to help us all grow a, a more mature mindset and mature practices around having a genuine Christian community. It's an elusive thing to have a healthy religious community. It can become so toxic, um, and there was, church life and any kind of religious group can be fraught with all kinds of challenges and problems. And so we want to look at how do we, how do we resist that and how do we create a genuine community. We started off week one, the idea of being sheep shepherds, that we're all to take responsibility for the church flock together. Last week, we looked at the idea of being an authentic community. And today, we're doing a deep dive into the idea of being an example to others. Our sermon today is titled, Examples Matter. Examples Matter. Let's pray and then let's get into this. Lord, we pray for your help. We pray that you would give us a vision for how to build the kind of church that you came to start and that we would understand what it means to be an example to others, but also that we would be those who seek role models and seek to live up to the best examples that we see around us. Lord, through this, glorify yourself Illuminate your word to us today, and if there's anyone here that doesn't know the way, show them the way and bring them into your family. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as we've established so far in this series, um, the idea of God gives us, in a church family, we're, we're referred to as a flock of sheep, and God gives us shepherds. He gives us overseers, he, those who are appointed pastors in churches, and they're supposed to be an example uh, to us. They're supposed to be worthy of imitation. Our leaders are never perfect. The ones we look to are uh, supposed to kind of show us some of the, the, the best ways to do it. Not perfect, and we, we shouldn't hold them too in too high regard, but yet we should still desire to emulate the good positive traits that we see in those who uh, have the highest responsibility in church life. Uh, the Apostle Peter in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, he puts it this way, and then Paul puts it this way as well. Uh, so church elders are charged with being examples to the flock. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So we need figureheads, we need those, those shepherds, those overseers to look to as examples. But also, um, we're all called to be examples to each other. We can't just say, well, that's someone else's responsibility. They're supposed to be the ones to look to. We all have to be growing in this. And so in uh, Galatians chapter Five, I think it is, this next one here. Any second now. Uh, sorry, Philippians 3, I got it wrong, Philippians 3, 17. It says, keep your eyes, this is the Apostle Paul, he says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So now this is interesting. He's still saying, 
Paul's still saying, hey, follow your leaders, follow those who set the best example for you, do that. But he's also saying, keep your eyes on anyone else who is doing the same thing. Anyone who is a good example to follow, follow their example. If they're doing it well, they're doing it right, follow along with them. This is for all the sheep, all the sheep of the flock. We're all called to be setting the best example for each other. We can see this actually, plenty of examples of ordinary Christians in the Bible, people who don't have a stage, don't have a big platform, don't have a big ministry, just ordinary everyday people who set an amazing example. They're kind of behind the scenes kind of people. We've got this list here. So number one, we've got the widow. Remember her who gave the two measly coins, Luke 21. She, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And Jesus said, everyone should give like this woman. Mary sat at Jesus' feet instead of striving. It says she had chosen the good portion. That's what Jesus said to her. The parable of the good Samaritan. Jesus says, go and do likewise. He set an example. Obviously, it's a parable, but uh, nonetheless, still an example that Jesus gives us. Number four, the young boy offered his lunch to a hungry crowd, right? This is one of the big uh, feeding of the, of the crowds, right? There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. I don't think they stole them from the boy. I think they asked who has stuff and he came forward and said, here's my lunch. What a great example. Follow his example. Uh, number five, the woman at the well who told her whole town about Jesus. And then number six, the, the woman who worshiped Jesus with an expensive jar of ointment. Who was, she was criticized by the religious people for that one, but uh, she was doing the right thing. So we have all these examples. These examples in Scripture, there's more we could look at. These are just a few I thought up and came up with. Um, when we look at these kinds of examples, they should make us ask, what's the kind of example that I am setting? What's the kind of example that I am setting? I'm proud to say at Trinity Church, we have a lot of people that are behind-the-scenes kind of people who really shine the light and set an amazing example. Like we mentioned, people serving in the back, visual tech people in the back. We've got our kids' volunteers. They have to miss service when they're serving, uh, volunteering in our kids' ministry. Um, we have, um, I think of like somebody like Greg Tiffany, who's our building manager, is doing all kind of busy work in the background. Big thanks to Greg. But many others doing all kinds of amazing work. And then all the things that don't get seen. You know, the phone calls that get made, the encouraging text messages that get sent, just the things that happen, that just everyday, ordinary things where we're taking care of each other. Um, what an amazing example. We have lots of examples of that, good examples of that in our church uh, to follow. Albert Einstein, a real genius, uh, said this. He said, setting an example is not the main means of influencing others. It is the only means. And of course, that's hyperbolic. There's different ways of influencing people. But he's, what he's trying to say is, you read between the lines, he's trying to say, that's the biggest one, is, 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 the, is setting the right example to others. Now, the challenge for Christians is, for anyone actually, but the challenge, especially since the beginning of the church, is that there are lots of bad examples. And the bad examples are very powerful too. And examples can be, see, an example can be positive or negative. They're kind of neutral in that regard. You have to discern, are they good or bad? But there can be lots of bad examples, and those bad examples can be very influential and very persuasive on the flock, on the sheep. So uh, I think it's the, the Apostle Peter here in this next verse. No, it's the Apostle Galatians 5. He says, you are running well. He's writing to the Galatians. You are running well, guys. Who hindered you? From obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. 
And he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So the problem for the Galatian Christians was they, they've been doing really well. Maybe you've been like this or you know somebody like this. You've been doing really well. You're on track. You're like, yeah, spiritually I'm strong. I'm following God, you know, doing all the right stuff. But there's some persuasions come in. Somebody else is now influencing you. This happened to the, the Galatian Christians. Somebody else started influencing them. And it was very powerful. And so Paul uses this uh, analogy of leaven. And this is a very apt illustration. If you think of yeast, you just have to get a little, just a small pinch, just a little amount of yeast, right? You think of a lump of dough during the pandemic. Anyone got into baking bread? Anyone that was a big, remember those days? They just learned how to make bread. We're stuck at home. What are we going to do? Eat bread, too much bread. Uh, it's not good for the waistline, unfortunately, uh, also. But you know, you know, you get the idea, right? Just a little bit of yeast you cannot stop that whole lump from being completely overtaken, completely controlled, completely transformed by just a little bit. Maybe you don't, you didn't get the baking thing, but surely you've washed your clothes before. Have you ever accidentally had like a red sock in with your whites? Has this happened to anyone before? A red sock in with the whites maybe, or another kind of color in, the, in with the whites? And what happens? You didn't like Barbie, now you do. Now you're a Barbie fan. Uh, that's the problem. It just takes one little thing to get in there. I was actually with uh, some friends yesterday at a brewery, and we were talking about actually how the big thing that brewers have to really care about, they spend most of their time doing, is cleaning. If you don't keep your stuff clean, one little bit of contamination will ruin your entire supply. It's the same principle. It's the same idea. Uh, that you, it's just this, this little example can get in. Even the smallest bad example can taint the whole thing, can transform the whole lump of dough. Our lives are not isolated. You know, people say, you know, no man is an island, right? But that's, that is very true. Our lives are not isolated from each other. So if we struggle to make commitments, if we struggle to be committed, what what message does that send to those around us? It sends the message to people around us, it doesn't matter if you're committed. If we gossip a little bit, well, it's not a lot, but I'm just going to say this little thing to this other person. If it's just a little bit, what does that do? That gives other people permission to gossip all the more. It spreads. It contaminates the whole thing. What if um, we're unnecessarily absent from the church community? What does that communicate? Well, it communicates it's not important to be here doesn't really matter. What if we're selfish? We're just driven by our own goals. We're not really seeking to pour our lives out for other people, to be a blessing to others, to pass on what God has put in us to others. If we're just thinking about ourselves all the time, our goals come first. We've got our dreams, our vision, our little picturesque view of life, the life we're trying to build. If we live that way, well, guess what? That's going to communicate to other people. That's going to validate in them, my life belongs to me and I'm most important in my life. It doesn't matter if you mean to or not, if you, even if you don't understand how you're coming across or what you're doing, you cannot stop transmitting your values and influencing other people with your values for anyone in your life, anyone that you're connected with, anyone that you have some kind of rapport with or some kind of influence with. This is true in my life too. Any, anything I do, I have to think about this, anything I do, whether good or bad, will make an impact on somebody else's life. It will affect them in big ways. We have some 
These are kind of extreme. I realized after I prepared this sermon, the examples, I'm about to give you three examples from the Bible. They're kind of extreme. I apologize for this, but nonetheless, we'll do it because it's the Bible. And the Bible is full of extreme crazy things, you know, because the human race is extreme and crazy. So that's what, the, what we've got here. We've got these uh, three negative examples. So this first one is Noah gets drunk. Bad example. One of his sons uses the opportunity to do something sinful, perhaps peeping on his own father. Gross. Let's not spend too much time thinking about that. Number two this is how example sin replicates itself. You can't stop it. It's like that leaven, it's that yeast that just keeps growing. Isaac and Rebekah show favoritism to different children. You can read about that in Genesis 25. And then Jacob, their son, follows this poor example and shows favoritism to his son Joseph. This results in deception, fuse, jealousy, attempted murder, slavery, and the list goes on. It's, if you don't know your Bible history, don't worry, I just gave you a big insight there into the... Some of the stuff happening in Genesis. Now, this one gets, gets even more gnarly here. King David, our favorite king, you know, wrote all the great Psalms. Psalm 23, three, the Lord is my shepherd, all the, all the best stuff, right? The worshiper of the Bible, King David. He committed adultery, a horrible example to the whole nation, but also to his own children. So his son Absalom, sorry, his son, that's the last one. His son Solomon, among other cravings, appeared to become a sex addict. Bad example uh, set to his son. David's other son, uh, Amnon, took advantage of his niece Tamar, and then Absalom, David's other son, slept with his father's concubines in a tent on top of the palace so all Israel could see it. <laughs> see, now the people who haven't read the Bible are the ones who are really shocked. See, if you read the Bible a lot, you're like, it's got some spicy stuff in there. As some... The point of the Bible isn't to make people look good. The point of the Bible is to make God look good and to make us realize how much we need God and how bad we So it lays it all out. The Bible is not a book of heroes, it's a book of villains with one hero, that's God. So those are the best, so our examples matter. What a lie. See, even that last example there with David, David commits adultery and then his three sons all commit heinous sexual sin as a result. It is such a lie, and this is one of the biggest lies of our time, is my sexual sin well, you can say for any sin, but on that, since we're on the topic, my sexual sin is just is private, whatever I do. doesn't affect anyone, does it? Of course it does. Anything. It's not just that one example, but anything. Anything. It, it has repercussions. It's like that, that, that ripple effect, right? You throw a stone in, in, a, in, in a lake and you see that ripple effect. It just it keeps going and going generations and generations, working out. It's powerful. It's sad. We, we see... Uh, one more example here, actually. Uh, the Apostle Peter, so those are Old Testament examples. Let me give you one New Testament example. The Apostle Peter, with his poor behavior, and he should be, he's like one of Jesus' main dudes, and he should know better. Um, but we see here in this uh, next passage here, I think it's uh, Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, that means non-Jewish people, so he was happy to eat with all kinds of people, not just Jews. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Next slide. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, 
How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, what's going on here? This, the negative effect of the circumcision party, and just to be clear, the circumcision party is more like, more like a political party or a group affiliation. It's not, not like a different kind of party, uh, not like a social gathering, all right? It's not, don't imagine they're sitting around playing poker, you know, taking shots and circumcising each other. That'd be a, that's, that's like next level men's ministry right there. The shots would probably help with it too. So um, not that kind of party, different kind of party. This is a, this is a group affiliation. And uh, th- so there's this group, and I, I hope they didn't call themselves that, the circumcision party, but that, this was a Jewish tra- you know, tradition, right? That, that hey, the men, you know, uh, the, a Jewish, we get circumcised. That's what we do. That's part of our religion. Okay, great. Um, but then Jesus came along and transformed all of that. He was a Jew. He was circumcised himself, of course, but he transformed all of that. And so the apostles then had to figure out, and the other leaders had to figure out, oh, you don't have to be, to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, you don't have to be circumcised. But these people were coming along, and it crept into the church. Actually, yes, of course you've got to follow Jesus. That's the, most, that's the first thing. That's the most important thing. But you know what? You also really got to do the circumcision thing. If you don't do it, I don't know, it could be bad for you, you know? may not make it to heaven or something. Something bad's going to happen to you. And so this, and so Peter, the apostle of Jesus. I mean, this is shocking. A little leaven. See, what we do matters. What we do matters. It's just a little leaven can get in and affect the whole lump. Peter himself bought this. He started segregating himself. When they would eat food together, he used to eat with everyone. He used to say, it doesn't matter who your background, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter Jew, Gentile, whatever nationality you have, whatever language you speak, whatever skin color you have, no matter who you are, I'll sit down and eat with you because in the gospel of Jesus, we're all unified, we're all connected, we're all sinners, now we're saints, we're saved, we're all together. That's what Peter knew, but this other doctrine came in and he started segregating, saying, well, you're not circumcised, so you're kind of a bit unclean. We can't really... Now, listen, we, we have a history of segregation in our culture, and we know how bad that is. We know how... So, so what Peter's doing here is kind of a bit racist. He's segregating, saying, well, you're not really good enough to sit with us, so we're going to now start separating out. And what does the Apostle Paul have to do? He has to say, he has to power up and say, this false teaching, this has been like leaven, like a little, someone dropping in a little bit of yeast into your dough and like that red sock in, in, in the laundry. And it's affecting everything. It's going against the very truth of the gospel message itself. That you can't add a single thing to the work of Christ to save you. And that's what they were trying to do with this. They're trying to say, oh no, actually, salvation, knowing God, it's kind of a bit dependent on you as well. You have to be good enough to attain it. You have to work at it a bit. That's, that kind of religion is toxic. That is toxic and destructive. The gospel message is founded on grace, on the sacrifice and work of Jesus alone. We can add nothing, nothing of our own righteousness could ever get us close enough to God. It has to be a free gift. And I can't believe that Peter missed it. Even Peter. And Peter said he led astray all of the Jews. Not only that, Barnabas. I mentioned Barnabas. If you don't know Barnabas, solid dude. Amazing guy. Solid guy. Even Barnabas was like, well, if if Peter's doing it, there's got to be something to it. Like he was with Jesus. 
Surely he knows. Or I just go along with the separation nonsense. Our example matter. It matters so much. Now, this is sobering, isn't it? It's very sobering to think about because when you think about your own life, you think, there's probably been times where I followed a bad example. Sometimes you do that unwillingly. You don't really know it's a bad example. Other times we're looking for a bad example to justify the bad things we already know we want to do. And we're just hoping that somebody important will come along so we can say, oh, great, now I can say, well, they're doing it. So different motivations, different things behind it. But it's sobering to think that we may have followed a bad example, but also that we may have set a bad example. It's challenging, it's sobering, it's, it's convicting, and there's no way around it, it's going to feel heavy. If you feel heavy right now, good. God uses, it's a thing called conviction, it's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thank God it doesn't last forever. But in His kindness to us, God allows us to feel conviction. To, we, we feel, that's what the nature of sin is. See, God isn't making us feel bad. All He's doing is shining a light on the crummy things within us. And then when we see what that is, then we're like, we feel bad about what that is. That's how it works. There's no other way around it. So the, the sanitizing effect of light comes in and you start to see, oh, there's these gross things in my heart and in my mind and all this stuff and I didn't see it was there. And it's a terrible example to other people. And in God's grace, he shines a light, he convicts us, and that heaviness we feel, the heaviness of like, I may have led others astray. Oh my gosh, I may have been led astray by others who I thought were doing the right thing, and that looked good, or that sounded good, and I just copied it, went along with it, because I'm a sheep, because I'm a bit of an NPC. If you don't know what an NPC is, a non-playable character in a video game, right? The non-playable characters, the ones that are just like, they just, you know, they're the ones who just, some people in life are NPCs. They're non-playable characters. They're just sheep. They just go along with everything. We can't be like that. We have to set, we have to have a higher level of awareness, understanding what I do matters. Every decision in my life matters. It has a ripple effect. It affects everyone around me. Everyone I'm connected to, everyone I touch, it affects my example matters. And God in his grace convicts us and moves us, uses that, uses that conviction, uses that weight, the weight of that and the heaviness of that to move us in the right direction that we might say, I need to live up to the calling I have in Christ. I need to live up to this. To be the man God has called me to be, to be the woman God has called me to be, to be faithful in the small things, to be committed for the long term, if I'm struggling to get help, to be there when others are struggling. We're all one big team. We're in this together. We need each other, right? We're not trying to fake anything. We're not trying to just go along, to get along. We're going deep. I really appreciate Natasha's testimony today. She went deep. That's, that's an authentic, hey, that's the kind of culture we're trying to build here at Trinity. That's the, what, a great, what a great example. There are positive, thank, thank God there are positive examples in Scripture too. If we want to be like anyone, we should be like the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Uh, again, Apostle Paul is writing this. He says, uh, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So that's where they started. They started with that. Hey, imitate the apostles, imitate Jesus. Brilliant place to start. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Acacia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. This is amazing. 
When he says it's gone forth everywhere, that means everywhere, because the apostle Paul was a missionary, he's going around new places, trying to reach new territory for Jesus, start new churches, all that kind of good stuff. He's doing that, and he's basically saying, everywhere I go, I don't need to tell them about you. They've already heard of you. Your testimony, your good example has been so powerful and so influential and so encouraging that people can't stop talking about it. They can't, they can't stop talking about it. Like, look, these guys really took Paul and the other apostles and Jesus seriously. And it, it didn't just affect them and their church. It affected their whole region. And then beyond that, everywhere we go, they've all heard of the Thessalonians, of their amazing example and everything that they've done to follow Jesus. Now, we understand how stuff can spread pretty quickly, right? We can get influenced very quickly. We live in a social media age when things are trending pretty quickly, right? Maybe you've been caught up in some social media trends and some other things. Anyone here done the planking challenge? The Sprite Burp challenge, anyone? The Ice Bucket challenge, the Mannequin challenge. You guys remember that one? The Mannequin challenge, remember that one? Maybe dating myself here now. I don't know, I need some new... New, uh, the bottle flip challenge, uh, the Tide Pod challenge. That was a don't do that one. It's a bad example, uh, very bad example. Uh, the floss dance, right? That was a big one. Anyone can floss. Anyone want to show us their floss today? Um, the sock um, sliding challenge. I don't know. So all of these things catch fire because people see them because we're in a, we're in a context of doom scrolling all the time, where we just we're the NPCs, we're the sheep who just. We're just consumers. That's the problem with, with, with our cultural moment and our, our context is, is that we Christians have been turned into consumers. I mean, the whole culture has been. We're very consumeristic. It's about what can I get out of life? Everything exists to serve me rather than, oh, God has designed me and put things in me to do good in the world and to bless others around me. That's the Christian worldview. That's how Jesus lived. And that's the greatest joy you could have is to realize I've been designed to bless others. That's how I get my greatest joy is by pouring out towards others. I mean, the more we just take for ourselves and focus on ourselves, the more miserable we, we, we tend to become. And so we're living in this context where we're, just, we're doom scrolling all the time and we're just NPC, we're just gonna copy all the trends that are going on. You know, Christians though really should be the original influencers. We should be the ones setting the trends. We should be the ones setting the values in the culture. We're the, the church is designed to be this invisible substructure between, uh, uh, beneath the surface of the, uh, you know, of things, of the culture, where everything else springs up from. Because the values of a culture are grassroots. They don't come from the top to the bottom. They come from the bottom to the top. And that's what the church does. The church sits at the bottom of the culture and the values grow out. I mean, that's why people don't know their history. They don't know, we wouldn't have charities if it wasn't for Christianity. You wouldn't have hospitals if it wasn't for Christianity. You wouldn't have universities if it wasn't for Christianity. You wouldn't have any of this stuff. It all grew out of the Christian faith. It grew directly out of, it, out of the teachings of Jesus, a lot of it. This is the example. This is the influence. We're the original influencers. The ones setting the pace. The ones talking about all the important stuff that's at the foundation of the society. If we don't care about our example, if we don't have a vision of how to live our lives by setting a good example to others, it does come back to this issue of love. It actually means we don't have others' in best interests at heart. We're struggling to love those around us because we, we don't realize how much of an effect our lives have on people. Our lives have an enormous effect. Even if our bad examples that we set, even if it doesn't cause other people to take the same action, it's still super discouraging. I mean, I can think about some of the most painful things in my life have come about because I've seen people make horrible decisions 
and go down a dark path and struggle with something. And it's crushing, it's terrible. You think, oh no, it's, you know, I hope that doesn't affect, I hope that doesn't set a bad example for others to follow, but also, man, it's just crushing to, to, see that, to see that happen. The idea of setting a good example is connected to the idea of love. If I, if I truly love people, I'd want to set the best example for them I possibly could, because I want the best in their life. The Apostle John, he puts it, this way, talking about love, 1 John 4, 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. So that's God. God first loved us. So here's how this works. is For us to set an example, we have to really love other people. But if we're struggling to set that example, then it means we're struggling to love other people. And if we're struggling to love other people, it's because we don't know the love of God for ourselves. To understand the radical love of God. How much of a sacrifice it cost. That our sin was so horrible that the, the tainting of sin in our lives is so destructive. See, sometimes we, we don't like the idea of God holding people accountable for how they live, right? We're like, oh, that sounds angry or bad. Like, I, you know, I, I can't cope with that. That's triggering somehow. It's like, well, no, that's, evil is bad. Evil is wrong. Like, a holy God should be upset about human evil and should want to cure it and should want to set us free from it. And he wants to set us free from it. And so our sin was so horrendous, so horrible, that it took a perfect sacrifice. It took Jesus laying his life down on the cross to set us free. And see, you can, hear, you can grow up hearing that every day in Sunday school. You can come to church and hear it. You can sing it in songs, but you still may not get it. And you know you don't get it if you don't love other people. That's the test. If once we begin to love other people, then you reverse engineer that and you realize, oh, that's because something dramatic has happened in me where I've understood how much God loves me. This radical kindness, this, that the Son of God, that my sin was so terrible and so gross that he had to deal with it, but that he was willing to deal with it. He paid the price to deal with it. And so to get rid of our impurities and to confess our sin and to come to God, like it starts with, obviously it's the work of God on our behalf on the cross, and then our part of that is essentially having some, some self-examination, having kind of an open heart and open mind and saying, I need to be willing to, to, to look at the condition of my own heart, because it's so easy, and this is what can happen in any kind of religious community, any kind of church or any, just even a non-religious community can happen where we, we're very judgmental and prejudiced. We just wish, we wish the world would change for us. We wish other people, if only that person was a bit nicer, if only that person spent a bit more time with me, if only that person did that for me, if only that person did that, if only, we just want everything else to change. And what we, the Christian message is no, 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 no. Humble yourself, like Jesus did on the cross. Humble yourself. Start here. Start here. Pull back those layers. David prays this in, in Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. That's the, the humility, the foundation of the Christian faith, is that we can't approach God and even be aware of our own filth and our own impurities and our own sin to deal with it if we're not, first of all, a little bit curious, a little bit open, a little bit interested in looking inside and saying, what is the condition of my own heart? How am I doing? 
What is my attitude towards others? You, you can't know if your life is a good example if you can't examine your own life. You can't know it. It's impossible. So this is, shepherds of the flock are told this, told, hey, you know, keep an eye on the whole flock, but also on yourself. It says it's in Acts chapter 20, I think it is. It says, uh, specifically, pay careful attention to yourself. So that's said to, Apostle Paul says that to the elders of the church in Ephesus. It's not just pay careful attention to the flock. Yes, yes, as overseers, yes, you've you got to keep an eye on the flock. But you have to keep an eye on yourself too. You have to have some self-examination. It makes sense because if a shepherd gets wounded or gets taken out, the sheep are in great danger because the sheep can't defend themselves very well. They're more open to attack. You've got you to make sure. That, so, so a shepherd is doing a couple of things. And anyone who wants to have the heart of a shepherd who says, I want to love and care for others, that kind of shepherd is, is, is doing both. They're saying, I'm keeping an eye on others to keep them guarded and help them, but also keeping an eye on my own life. And the kind of dangers that we've got to keep an eye on, all, this is for all of us because we're sheep shepherds, we've got to keep an eye on, well, what are some dangerous beliefs that I could have or that others could have that are going to harm them? What's going to harm the Christian community? Dangerous circumstances, dangerous people that could come and introduce ideas that are going to take people away because people are very influenced by things. We're very influenced by things. We're social creatures. You can't help but interact with somebody and come away being affected by them, either positively or negatively. You're, you're always affected by the people you're around. And so the skill of self-examination, of peeling back the layers and looking inside, is an essential skill in the kingdom of God. Because we, we live in a spiritual battle. That's what the Christian life is. It's a spiritual battle. It's a battle of beliefs, a battle of ideas, a battle of thoughts. That's what it is. That's what spiritual warfare is. And we, we have to realize there's demonic propaganda that's trying to take us out. You know, there's, there's the fog of war, right? Where you, you're in a battle, you're in a conflict. You heard the phrase, the fog of war. At the beginning of a battle, the beginning of a war, it's just... It's, Bombs have gone off, things are blown up, and there's just fog everywhere. And you're like, I don't even know what's happening. Or, Did we accidentally attack ourselves? Did somebody else attack us? What's going on here? Is it just bad weather? Like, you're just confused in the midst of the battle. You don't know. And we have to become those who become discerning enough where even in all the confusion, we're quick enough to say, I see what's going on. I can see through that fog. I can see the dangers lurking, and I'm ready to respond in, in the right way. We have to, we have to remember that, that. Or we, we, it's, it's a battle of propaganda. It's a battle because the more you can be lied to, the more the enemy keeps you in the trenches so you're not on the battlefield. You're not actually fighting. You're not out there doing the good work of God. You're just like, well, I, I can't do that because of this, 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 or this. I'm disqualified because of this, 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 and this. So I'm in the trenches. I'm not actually doing the warfare, the spiritual warfare, you understand, that God has called me to. And this, this isn't just, see, self-examination and being able to make sure that my own heart is guarded enough so that I'm not, I don't buy into the propaganda of my enemy. It's not just for shepherds and overseers, it's for all Christians. All Christians, this is an indispensable skill in the Christian faith to better look inside and say, what's the condition of my, am I safe? It's the whole thing, right? On the, on the, I mentioned it earlier on, actually, I think, before the service started, but on the, the instructions they give you on a plane, right? Secure your oxygen mask first. Right? If, if you're worried about the person next to you, then you're going to pass out and be no good to anybody else. You've got to put your mask on first, and then you can help others. That's how this works. So I've got to make sure that 
I'm not being deceived somehow by a false, by a little bit of, has a little bit of leaven gotten in? Because, you know, it gets everywhere. It contaminates. Gets, is it a little red sock in the wash? Who has red socks? Anyone have red socks? Christmas socks. Here are some red socks. But they look good on you, actually. Yeah. <laughs> when this is for this is this to be sheep shepherds to be those who want to set the best example that are looking out for each other to do it well the reason people get to be shepherds is because they're first they first learn how to guard themselves that's what qualifies you that's what qualifies you to actually become a, a greater spiritual leader a greater influence in other people's lives is oh i'm actually i've learned some things about guarding my own heart and so therefore, I'm actually a little bit equipped to then help others with that same thing. And I'm less, uh, I'm more impervious to those kinds of attacks because I've learned a bit. I'm not, I'm not perfect. I can easily still be the apostle Peter was taken out temporarily. Had to be challenged in front of everyone. That would have been a day, right? It's like, man, Paul and Peter are fighting. That would have been awkward. This is for everyone, and we, we, we need each other. This is why we've got to be in a church community. It's why you've got, you got to be in a small group. It's why you've got to be connected to other people because it's, it's mirrors. It's reflecting ourselves. The only way you can see yourself is through other people. Your, our identity is defined by the community that we belong to. Identity is not just an abstract thing that floats around by itself. Identity is formed and forged and comes about through who we are around. Jeremiah 17, I think it is, the, the prophet, he puts it like this. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. So we can't see ourselves clearly. Our hearts deceive. So we trick ourselves. We lie to ourselves. And so if, if, if we're blind... How easy is it to be leading other people astray, setting a bad example to others? How can we say, follow me, if we're walking around like this, groping around? It's not possible. I remember, this is rang true in my life, uh, years ago now, an old pastor of mine, Tommy, this is back when my wife and I lived in Kansas City. I remember sitting down with Tommy and just, I was in my mid-20s, and I, I really wanted to grow more. I wanted to be discipled, I wanted to be invested in more, but I was prideful, I was arrogant, I didn't really understand what I was asking, or what I even needed, and it was awkward, and I was trying to meet with him, I'd initiated with him, say, yeah, and I, was, I didn't even know how to ask for that. Like, I just couldn't figure out how to put it, it was super awkward, and I just ended up, and, and, and I ended up just saying to him, like, look, what questions do you think I should be asking you right now? And, you know, if you were a young version of yourself, like, what would you tell yourself? You know, if you're my age and, you know, what would you say? And what I came away from that situation kind of, I couldn't see it at the time, but looking back on it now, I, I realized the first step to self-awareness in order so I can guard my own heart, so I can be aware of my own life, my own, the only, my own example I'm setting, I'm going to be aware of all that, is to first admit I can't see myself properly. I need, I need you to even kind of tell me, what, what do you think I should even be doing right now? I just don't know. I'm just kind of lost in that way. And sh slowly but surely over time, you pick it up bit by bit, and you, by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the people around you, you know, that you trust and love, and bit by bit you build it and grow that way over time. The, uh, you know, the emotional vulnerability in, in, in the book of Psalms, you know, David, who made some terrible mistakes, right? Committed adultery, also had somebody murdered, and, 
But he poured his heart out to God, you know. Psalms in the central book in the Bible, one of the biggest books in the Bible. The, the emotional vulnerability in the book of Psalms. I mean, David's praising God. He's happy at times, dancing, clapping. But he's also like, God, you've abandoned me. God, I'm alone. God, I'm vulnerable. God, I hate my enemies. Destroy all my enemies. Right? That doesn't mean that that's what God wants to do, but that's what David's at least praying for. The emotional openness and vulnerability in the Psalms gives us permission to actually start pouring out what's on the inside. Just You've got to get it out. If you want to peel back the layers, you need some, some level of self-examination to see how mature am I, how, am I, you know, how guarded am I, how, how well am I doing this so I can help and be a blessing to others. You've got to get it out. And as you get it out, and you, there's different ways to get it out, right? Being in a small group is a good first step. Not that you tell everyone your life story, but uh, at least sharing a little bit, bit by bit, right? Building trust with people. That's a great place to do it. Christian counseling is good. Uh, not all counselors are created equal, uh, but getting finding a good counselor can help. Even just journaling, just writing out, just getting it out. And as you pour out, as you open up your heart and you examine what is in there, you're saying, God, search me. Look into my heart. What's in there? How, I want to be a better example. I want to be more mature. I want to be stronger. I want to be the person you've designed me to be. As we do that, we have to pay attention to the words that come out. Jesus said in Matthew 15, he says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Excuse me. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So what you do is you, you reverse engineer it. Your words reveal your heart. I was talking to someone the other day, and they said, um, they said, it really bothers me when Christians, this person had misquoted something in the Bible, they said, it really bothers me when Christians intentionally misuse the Bible like that. So I was like, okay, well, listen to what you just said. What are you presuming in the words you just spoke? I said, my assumption would be this person actually is honestly saying this, that they've actually misunderstood it. We don't know that they're intentionally, they're just twisting. Some people do that. Some people intentionally know it doesn't mean something and they use it to say something else. But a lot of people just misunderstand something. They think it means the thing. I was like, you're making a judgment about that person's heart that you cannot know. There's no spiritual gift of mind reading. You can't know it. But in paying attention to the words, you can start to figure out and start to discern what's actually going on inside of me. So I said to that person, that, that kind of, you know, that, that feels a little toxic. You know, think about that. I'm not saying it is. I don't know your heart. But, but think about that level of presumption towards somebody else. It's a little toxic. How does that work? Getting clarity on our thoughts and our feelings is a biblical expectation, a sign of maturity, and the best way that we can become the best example to others. Eric Liddell was a man who set an amazing example and was somebody who examined his own heart and actually looked deeply into who he was in God. What became of Eric Liddell in the Japanese internment camp? Instead of focusing on his own suffering and his own survival, Eric poured himself out to serve others. He particularly focused his time and energy on helping the teenagers in the camp. He would cook for them. They lovingly would refer to him as Uncle Eric. And uh, he would cook for them. He would organize recreational activities for them and sporting events for them. Although in classic Eric Little uh, style, he refused to referee on Sundays for them. Until one day he saw kids fighting 
on a Sunday that he didn't referee for them. And so he reconsidered, is this the best decision in this moment? And he relented. So when it came to like fame and getting the gold medal, he was going to live to his convictions and say, I'm not going to run on the Sabbath. But when it came to pouring his heart out for others and serving others, he was like, there's some flexibility here. He wasn't a legalist. He understood God's grace, understood that dynamic. It's a powerful illustration. Um, he also cared for the elderly and the ill and the weak. A lot of ill people in the camp with all the diseases. And he regularly attended the Christian meetings that were put on by different missionaries in the camp. And he taught the Bible to others. He, let, he allowed the Bible to examine his own heart and test, test his own heart against the Scripture. He loved the Sermon on the Mount the most, Jesus' most famous teachings. He was always talking about the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus spoke about. He, um, we're told that more than anyone else in that camp, if it hadn't been for him, many people wouldn't have been able to cope. His cheerfulness, his generosity, his winsome spirit, his love for God, help many people cope with life in that internment camp. And more than anyone else there, it said that he had a love for life. He was overflowing with humor. He had sacrificial kindness and an inward peace more than anyone else. And even though he became a father figure to many young people in that camp, and he became an example to the whole world, the whole world was watching this was a celebrity Christian athlete at the time, known around the world. Everyone was watching, and even though he became a father to many in that camp, he never saw his own wife and children again. He suddenly became ill, and he wrote a letter to his wife, Florence. And as he finished the letter, his last words out of his mouth were, it's full surrender. It's full surrender. Talking about his surrendering to Christ, laying his life down, everything he had poured out. That was what his life was for, was to be given up for God. And he slipped into a coma and he died at the age of 43. That's my age. And it was a, they discovered it was a brain tumor that he had died of. Nobody mourned more than everyone in that camp who lost him. But the world mourned as well. His grave was set with a small wooden cross with his name written in boot polish. Landon Gilkey, who was a fellow missionary in the camp, wrote this about him. He says, It is rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint. But he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. A girl in the camp, Mary, a young girl that he cared for, said this about Eric Little. He said he was Jesus in running shoes. His uh, daughter, Maureen, who he never met because his wife was pregnant with her when they were evacuated. He never met her. She said this. She says, I realized what his life had been for. It all made sense. What happened allowed him to touch so many lives as a consequence. And his other daughter, Patricia, also wrote this. 
She said, the number of people he's influenced. Well, things seem to add up, don't they? You only appreciate it when you look at each stage of his life and make the connections between them. I used to ask myself, how would these things have turned out if the three of us and our mother had been in the camp with him? Then I understood my father would have spent less time with the other youngsters. which would have deprived them of so much. That didn't seem fair to them. He was needed there. The stories we heard after his death proved that. It was only three months later after his death that the camp was liberated. See, it's not the circumstances of our life that matter. It's the example that we set in the circumstances of our lives that matter. Eric Little ran the race of life with integrity, with righteousness, aiming at Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, there are people everywhere, the examples. We have people watching our lives all the time. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Jesus, of course, far more famous than Eric Little, set the greatest example for us. But the difference is, Jesus is actually our liberator. See, Eric Little can't liberate you from anything. He can inspire us to do good, and many people inspire us to do good. Only Jesus can make us good. Only Jesus can make us good. Let's Respond. Let's sing to Jesus. Let's open up our hearts. Let's start pouring out what's on the inside, asking God to examine us, that we might see, that, that his light might shine in our hearts, that we might see where we need to be set free, that we might have a bigger vision for our lives to say, everything I do in my life matters because it affects other people, for good or for worse. If you don't know Jesus... Come into his family today.